That was day one of opening arguments in the Microsoft antitrust case, recorded in October of 1998. And now, 22 years later, in October of 2020, another American tech giant has been hit with an antitrust lawsuit. This time, the company in the line of fire is Google. The case has already been called historic more times than I care to count. But it is a big deal, and it's what we're going to talk about today on Brainstorm, the podcast about how tech is reshaping our world. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Brainstorm. I'm Michal Avram. And I'm Brian O'Keefe. You know, I think a lot of people hear antitrust and just kind of zone out. It sounds kind of boring but important, not something they really feel like they need to pay attention to. But in the world of antitrust, this case is a huge development. I think that's something that we knew before we did the interviews for this episode, but the people we spoke to really made the case for why this is going to have a lot of relevance for everyday people and is really something that we need to watch. I'm sorry, Brian, did you say something about antitrust? I kind of yeah, zoned out. Yeah, I know. Were you checking Instagram? No, Twitter. No, but but seriously, um, I totally agree. This is important. This is something that, yes, in the past we could have zoned out over, but is uh, going to impact all of us potentially. Um, and for anybody who needs a recap, I feel like we should really quickly run through the basics here. You want to do the honors, Brian? You know, that used to be my nickname, recap. <laughs> Why? <laughs> I love to recap things. Oh, that's fun. Yeah, so let me do it here. So, yeah, here's the recap. The Justice Department and 11 state attorneys general are suing Google. The accusations are focused on Google's search platform. It's clearly the dominant player in search. And while that's not against the law, the lawsuit says that Google has used illegal means to build and maintain a monopoly. For instance, it points to Google paying phone makers like Apple and wireless networks like AT&T to make Google their default search engine. And one final thing, Michal, this lawsuit is likely to drag on for a long time. We said at the top that Microsoft's court case kicked off in 1998, but the final resolution in that case was not reached until 2004. Well, I'm glad you brought it back to Microsoft because everyone is comparing the Google lawsuit to Microsoft's. And that's not just because Microsoft was the last major tech company to be sued for antitrust by the DOJ. If you remember, that was back during the early browser wars, Microsoft's Internet Explorer versus Netscape, uh, but also because the arguments being levied against Google are pretty similar. We're lucky enough to have a colleague here at Fortune who actually covered the Microsoft case back in the 1990s, back when he had really long hair. So I'd like to introduce Aaron Pressman, our esteemed colleague, and Aaron's going to take us back in time. Well, that was right in the middle of the internet bubble. And so Microsoft was already seen as this sort of maybe lagging dinosaur that couldn't keep up with all these fast internet companies that we were much more interested in as reporters. And the antitrust case, though, kind of grabbed everyone's attention in Washington. It was the hot 
beat to be on. We had no idea really that this was about to come down. So Aaron, given how surprised you were back in the day when Microsoft faced this antitrust suit, what was your reaction to the news about Google? Did you see this coming? Yeah, well, it's almost the exact opposite, right? So Google has been the dominant search engine for since they started, pretty much. And they have been doing one thing after another, whether it's paying Mozilla back in the day to be the default search engine on Firefox, or whether it's paying Apple to be the default search engine on the iPhone, which they've been doing since 2007. All these things have been like a, you know, a slow grinding locomotive in terms of antitrust violations for a long, long time. The European Union filed an antitrust case against Google almost for these exact reasons four years ago. There's literally nothing in this new case that's super new. Why is this the biggest case, the biggest antitrust case since the Microsoft case? What's what's big about it, Aaron? Well, there have been a lot of important antitrust cases and ones that have gone to the Supreme Court and made important decisions, you know, but they're usually about small companies or small uh, deals. And this is one of America's leading corporations, one of the most valuable companies in the world. And that is just not generally a run-of-the-mill antitrust lawsuit. So IBM was a huge case back in the 50s, the Microsoft case in the 90s, and now here in the 2020s, we have the Google case. These are, you know, iconic companies and the idea that the government needs to sue the most successful, one of the most successful companies in American history is almost self-contradictory, but it does seem to happen every few decades where that amount of power accumulates in one company and uh, we start to worry about whether it's too much. How would you go about comparing and contrasting these two antitrust suits with Microsoft and Google? You know, one of the things that's really interesting this time around is we've been talking in the media, in the courts, in Congress, all over the place about the problems of big tech and the lack of competition, with a lot of the conversation emphasizing, well, we need to change the laws, we need new laws, the laws don't apply right. And all of a sudden, here's the Justice Department with almost a carbon copy of the 20 years ago Microsoft antitrust case against Google. And that turns out that some of the things that Google does, which is make deals with other players in the tech ecosystem to exclude rivals or privilege their own products, are just classic antitrust violations. You know, like when the Sherman Act was thought up in 1890, that's exactly what they were thinking about, you know, railroads doing this sort of thing. So it is kind of ironic that we were so worried about how antitrust law might apply to big tech. And then here we are with a case that's just the most classic kind of antitrust case you could imagine. So you mentioned that um, it does fit into, in many ways, the classic parameters of an antitrust case. But Google has always pointed out that, you know, we're giving away these services for free. Gmail is this amazing thing. You know, our Google search is free. You know, how are we hurting the consumer? The consumer is getting access to all these free, amazing tools. And that seems to be, you know, a core part of what their defense is going to be going into this. How is that logic going to collide with what the government is going to allege? And how do you see that playing out in, in that debate legally? 
Brian, that's a great point. It cuts right to the heart of the matter. And in fact, in the Microsoft case, Microsoft's argument were very similar, that they were helping consumers. They were giving away browsers for free when Netscape had been charging for a browser. And I think Google is going to make the exact same kinds of arguments. And to some extent, those arguments carry the day for Microsoft. And I bet you they will carry the day for Google in many of the charges that are in this case, like they paid Apple to be the default browser on the iPhone. Anyone who wants can reset their default browser. And what leverage does Google have over Apple? None, right? So the reason that deal happened is not probably because of anti-competitive reasons, but probably because it made the most sense for Apple financially and Apple customers who like using Google search. So I think in many cases, you're absolutely right. However, I think there are other cases, especially when you start to get into the Android phone ecosystem, Android phone makers who really depend on Google for a lot of software and services and important things to sell the phones. That starts to look a lot more like Microsoft and the old PC makers, you know, like Compaq and IBM, all the people who testified about how badly they were getting squeezed at the antitrust trial in the 90s. So. I think there is a large part of the case that you're absolutely dead on, but I think there is a piece of the case, at least, that still uh, Google might have a hard time getting out of. <laughs> Where do you look up information online? On Google Chrome or Google. I would either go to a library or go to Google, Google it or ask someone. I think I usually use Google. Okay. What if Google wasn't working? Where would you where would you go? Um, well, if there wasn't the coronavirus, I would probably ask my teacher if I was at school. Um, yeah, I'd probably use my school resources, but if that was not working, then I'd probably use like Wikipedia or something like that. What if you couldn't get access to Google? How would you look something up? I would most likely ask you. So, Brian, your son obviously thinks you're like a, a really good alternative to Google that you know almost as much as Google does, apparently. Well, that's because he can't see me Googling everything right before I answer him. <laughs> and your daughter seemed to think that going to school is a good place to find out information. Yes, I have uh, tried to teach them well. Uh, yeah, it's crazy, though, because, I mean, we did not grow up thinking that this was like the one source that you go to for all of your information. Yeah, I mean, I'm old enough to remember the pre-Google world where we were looking up things on all the kings of search that were called Lycos and AltaVista, InfoSeek, Hotbot. Don't forget Jeeves. Ask Jeeves. I will ask him. Yeah, all these like just fell by the wayside. And I mean, I know there are other search engines out there still. So I had a chance to speak with a CEO who's behind one of these alternative search engines, one that is actually still around, and that's Gabriel Weinberg. He's the CEO of DuckDuckGo. He founded this company in 2008, and the idea was to create a more privacy-centric web browser. They make money by basically just selling ads based on keywords, which is a simplified version of how Google originally made money. One of our main core offerings is a, a search engine alternative to Google, a private search engine. And so we're one of the companies most affected by the suit. We view it as a landmark moment because the Department of Justice has really said in no uncertain terms that Google uses and continue to use anti-competitive tactics to maintain its online search monopoly. And so, you know, that hurts 
companies like us directly because we obviously are trying to compete in the search space. But the negative impact that it's had on society and democracy through Google's uh, surveillance business model, we think is far worse. And we think that's the bigger story here. And our role in it is to try to give consumers a way to opt out of that surveillance business model should they want to. You know, Google's got over 90% of the search market. Do you consider yourself a competitor? Who else would you put in that category? And I guess why even bother? They have such a stranglehold on search and have for a long time. So search is one of the biggest and most important markets on the internet. And so broadly, I think the reason why to focus on it is that importance. And from a consumer perspective, you know, as the suit laid out, it's really the gatekeeper to the internet. You know, people are turning to search to find basic information as well as political information. And and so I think it's important to want a competitive landscape there. In terms of the market, you know, it's a worldwide market, of course. This is focused on the U.S. market, this particular suit, but there are other suits, other places. In the U.S., there's really four uh, search engines that have any significant market share. It's Google, Bing, Yahoo, and us. And as you noted, Google's dominant. They're more dominant on mobile than they are on desktop and even more dominant on voice. And so just because they have 90% now doesn't mean that it has to stay that way. And in particular, we've run various studies that show if you give consumers an actual option, their market share could drop by 20 percentage points overnight. So there's a lot of pent-up demand for alternatives. One of the arguments on Google's side is that competition is just a click away. You beg to differ. Can you explain? And why do you not take that as a legit argument here uh, to fend off antitrust complaints? Because it just literally isn't a click away. There's actually a slide that the Department of Justice put out that shows all the different search entry points on the device. I think people may think, oh, it's just changing the search engine in Chrome, which, by the way, is still more than one click. But that aside, you still need to change the, the quick bar, the home screen search bar. You need to change the voice assistant way to get into search. You need to change the app, like use for searching. And so you need to change all these different entry points. And so to change all that stuff requires a lot of steps. And if you don't do that, you're actually not really changing the default because you're still kind of sucked back in into Google there. And so we would love it to be one click away. Um, it just is not. And in fact, that's really what we're, in terms of remedies, are arguing for is we, we would love that to be the remedy is to actually make search competition one click away. What we would hope the result of this suit or any suit is, is that consumers are really put in control of being able to select the option they want. And should that be a private option, they can do that. Should that be Google, they can do that too. On the privacy side, is that what draws most people to your uh, search service versus Google or some of the competition? Why should I, as someone who may or may not care or be as aware of privacy issues, want to use DuckDuckGo over Google? There's kind of a few deeper answers to that. One is, you know, tens of millions of people are using DuckDuckGo now, and there really isn't sacrifice in the results. And so I think there's an underlying premise that Google's results are somehow better, and it's just not true. People find the results satisfactory on DuckDuckGo, on Bing as well. And it's really been that way for a long time. And just people haven't really been trying alternatives as much because Google has locked up the market for defaults. 
That said, there are additional reasons why you would might want to switch. So DuckDuckGo, certainly privacy is front and center. But what people also like, which is a kind of byproduct of privacy, is when you're not tracking people, you also don't have a filter bubble. And people think, oh, well, that's I want like local weather and local restaurants. That's not what I'm talking about. You still get those on DuckDuckGo. You can actually do that without tracking people. I'm talking about like political topics and stuff like that. You don't want to get biased results that are tailored to you. And then another is ads. You know, as was noted um, in the complaint, Google has more and more ads over time. So when you switch to DuckDuckGo, you're getting less ads. So I think there are good reasons to switch for results. But I think more fundamentally, the results are way more similar than you think. And privacy is the real draw to DuckDuckGo. So as an example, this has come up before, this particular scenario where if you search for climate change is and Google, the results are going to vary pretty wildly based on any number of things like where you are regionally and what you've searched in the past. So if I search climate change is in DuckDuckGo, do I see the same thing that anybody else sees? That's right. Within a country region that you've opted into, so like everyone in the US index would be seeing the same thing at the same time. And I think we, so we've done multiple studies on the filter bubble on Google and think it is, it is really a pernicious issue. Climate change is a great example, but even back to, we did one study way back in 2012 and we think it really can influence the election. And people were seeing different results when they searched in that case for Obama versus Romney um, when researching candidates. And we did another repeat of that just a couple of years ago. And in response, Google said, exactly what you said is that it varies a lot by location and that's not personalized. But if you take that tool to the extreme, it really changes by very specific locations. And so if people are seeing different results by zip code, that those equate to voting blocks, right? And so that's making the country more polarized if say everyone in certain zip codes are seeing one side of an issue versus another, just based on what people have clicked on before in that, that zip code it's creating more and more of a bubble in that zip code. And we think that's really bad for democracy generally. So, Brian, I actually wanted to give this a go and test out, see how many steps it would take to switch my default search engine on my iPhone and on Siri to DuckDuckGo, from Google to DuckDuckGo. And indeed, it was more than one step, and it was not intuitive at all. Yeah, I have not tried to do all that, but I've actually had the DuckDuckGo app on my phone for a couple of years. I read about it a couple of years ago and decided to try it out, and um, it works perfectly well. I mean, I've, I've never found that I had a problem getting the search results I wanted, but I haven't developed the habit of it. I still tend to go to Google, you know, 99% of the time. There is one thing that has been bothering me that I've wanted to know. I hope you asked him about the name. Why is it called DuckDuckGo? Yeah, hold on, Brian. Let me go duck that. Uh, <laughs> you don't really hear people saying that. The name has not cut on, and I definitely did ask him about it. <laughs> um, so there's no great reason why it's named DuckDuckGo. Um, I kind of popped into my head one day, liked the name. It's memorable and friendly, and so I like that about it, especially for privacy uh, product, which, you know, privacy can be scary. And so it's nice to have more of a friendly face. And we obviously have a duck, you know, mascot named Dax. 
All right, so we've gotten a bit of historical perspective from Aaron, and we've talked to someone who is directly impacted by this lawsuit. And I think Gabriel did a pretty good job laying out how consumers may be impacted as well. To wrap things up, I wanted to talk to someone who could give us a legal perspective and look at what may be coming next. So we called Maurice Stuckey, a professor of antitrust and privacy law at the University of Tennessee. He previously spent some time as a prosecutor at the Department of Justice, and he's the co-author of a book called Competition Overdose. And he gets really energized talking about this subject. So Professor Stuckey, you are a antitrust expert. That's your, your area of expertise in the law. How exciting is it when something happens like an antitrust suit against Google comes down? This has been very exciting on multiple levels. So first, not only do you have the first major monopolization case in over 20 years, but second, this comes on the heels of a very important bipartisan investigation by the House Subcommittee on Antitrust. And that comes on the heels of very in-depth market inquiries done by the UK as well as Australia. And what you see in the in, from 2016 till today is an evolution in thinking that is really remarkable on how we view these powerful platforms, the risks that they pose not only to our wallets, but to our autonomy, our privacy, as well as our democracy. Were you surprised that the government brought this case against Google? Was, was Google the right first target for an antitrust case? And do you see the government potentially pursuing antitrust cases against some of the other big tech companies, perhaps Facebook, perhaps Amazon, Apple? After the House report, it would be really hard for the agencies to justify to continue doing nothing against Facebook, Amazon, and Apple. And we all knew that there were problems. We all knew that, that these companies had too much power. What the report explores is how these four platforms all have the same anti-competitive playbook and how they use this playbook in order to maintain their dominance and extend it in other markets. So I would be very much surprised if there wasn't a case brought against Facebook, particularly given the allegations that came out of the House report and the internal documents of Facebook. There's also a, a considerable outcry against Amazon and the way that it treats third-party sellers and how it leverages its market dominance into new markets. So one would expect an antitrust case against Amazon. And then finally, there is already currently a, a lawsuit against Apple as well as Google for the way they control their app stores. And I would imagine then that Apple might face additional antitrust scrutiny by, um, it's already under investigation by the Europeans, and I wouldn't be surprised in a case against Apple by the U.S. as well. Wow. So you really see this as a renaissance of the antitrust crackdown that we've seen at other points in our history. Absolutely. I mean, you have to recognize that we've had over the last 30 years this belief that antitrust had a very limited role and that markets will generally self-correct, that 
big is not necessarily bad. And we should really err on the side of caution in allowing these mergers to occur and allowing greater concentration. And what we found is that in many markets, even outside the digital platform markets, we find a few companies that dominate. You think about beer, airlines, healthcare, industry after industry, you start seeing the same thing. A few powerful companies who are extracting most of the wealth. You know, the economy is not working for our benefit. Competition is not necessarily serving us as it's supposed to be. So what you have is a market power problem. So uh, a lot of people have pointed out, or some people have pointed out, that the case that the government has brought against Google is very similar to the case that was brought against Microsoft, the antitrust case, 22 years ago. Does that indicate that the antitrust laws as they're written are still flexible enough and optimized enough for cracking down on a company like Google? Or do we need uh, an evolution in the antitrust law to be able to, to regulate and crack down on unfair competition among this new wave of big tech companies? Antitrust is an important but by itself is insufficient to address the problems of these powerful platforms. So what you're seeing from policymakers around the world is that we need more tools. Because if we rely on antitrust, it can take too long. And by the time you get to remedies, it may be then too late. The other thing is that even though Congress's design of the antitrust laws was to be supple, there's been a lot of bad dicta by the Supreme Court. And the result then is you have, under the Supreme Court's rule of reason standard, a trial that could take years. The result is uncertain. It costs millions of dollars to bring that case. It benefits primarily paid economists and high-priced lawyers. And it could then spend additional years on appeal, ultimately to be reversed. So that's fascinating. And it sounds to me like you kind of just outlined Google's defense, which is <laughs> they have very deep pockets and they will extend the process and they will have the best lawyers uh, making the most complicated defense arguments for them. What are the chances that they win this case in the end? And what what would that mean? What would the consequences of that mean? Google is fighting a multi-front war. And there could be a Pyrrhic victory that they may win in the U.S., but then lose in the EU or lose in Australia or lose in the U.K. And those losses then can have broader implications. And the odds of its winning on multiple fronts is lower than just winning in the U.S. So that's number one. Number two... If Google wins in court, it could still lose then in Congress because the concerns of the members of Congress are not going to go away. And then number three, even if Google loses in court, it could still win if the remedy is fairly weak. So bringing the case is only the first step. Winning the case is another. And then third, getting the right remedies along with the right legislative reform are all needed in order to get 
a better outcome, a more inclusive economy that actually can promote our privacy and promote our well-being. So one question that I have, Brian, is why now? I mean, Google has been dominant for a while. And why is this lawsuit and others in other countries happening now? That's a great question, Michal. And I asked Professor Stuckey that very question. And, you know, it was interesting to hear his perspective because he really sees this as the pendulum swinging back from a more laissez-faire approach to antitrust law to more of a regulatory approach. And, you know, it might seem like this kind of came out of nowhere, but it doesn't seem that way to him. Because since the Microsoft case, really the direction the U.S. has gone is to just assume that, you know, big businesses um, doing well was, was the best route for consumers. But we've started to see a lot more scrutiny from both parties in Washington, D.C. of the big tech companies. And we've started to see a lot more scrutiny from authorities around the world on Google and other companies. So really from his perspective, this is the beginning of uh, a new era of antitrust scrutiny of these companies. And it might actually you know, have consequences for the rest of big tech. So I think it bears watching. Sorry, Brian, did you say something about antitrust? Because I kind of zoned out. Oh, good point. I will uh, tweet at you later. <laughs> Sorry. So what you're saying is we're going to be covering antitrust in future episodes, basically. We'll have to see about that. (laughs) All right. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with more talk on how tech and antitrust is reshaping our world. The Brainstorm Podcast is a production of Fortune Media. Our show is written by Megan Arnold and edited by Nicole Vergala. Music is by Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. To get Google. Google. Wait, not with a banana in your mouth. Finish your banana. Okay. Say Google. Google.